0: are here in the 11 FS offices and we work at Aldgate in London for episode 47 of Blockchain Insider. Simon's still away, lucky man, uh, but I'm back in town and not in a field today. However, I happen to be here with two very special guests, our own Mr. Pete Townsend. Welcome back, Pete. Thank you, Colin. And one that I'm always, always excited to talk to, Mr. Richard Gendel Brown or at Gendel himself from R3. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Colin. And thank you guys for coming on. I know that it's been an insane week. Some of us have been in Dublin. Uh, Some of us have been in New York, partying with Maseratis and and Lamborghinis, um, because that's just how our three rolls. (laughs) So we've all come in and big news last week. Obviously, you heard about some of it. Really big things have come out um, since last week when we recorded the show. Today, we're going to talk about Circle becoming a Bitcoin unicorn. Uh, Consensus and Amazon collaborating because collaboration is what this is all about. And the SEC, launching a fake ICO website. But before we get on to all of that, we want to bring you a word from our sponsor...
1: Well, Richard Brown, CTO of R3 here, so I get to actually read the uh, sponsorship blurb. So here we go. Uh, Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy. Using smart contracts, Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 in collaboration with over 200 of the world's largest banks and technology partners and startups and independent software vendors and systems integrators, and it's ready to build on today, at the world's business community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now, you can transform your business ecosystem too with the platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on Corda. Go to Corda.net to learn
0: more. And now, on to the news. So uh, this week, we have all kinds of interesting things, as I alluded to here. I uh, want to get into one that, that's been brewing in the background for a while. So those who have been listening have heard about Bank Mitsubishi going all in on crypto, launching their own cryptocurrency. It seems like launching a state fiat-backed cryptocurrency is very popular nowadays. This one happens to not be in US dollars, but in yen. Pete, do you mind just walking us through the story a little bit, why this is important? Yeah. So Mitsubishi is one of the top five banks in the world, obviously,
2: and With the whole cryptocurrency thing in the market, big banks are looking at that and saying, is there a better way to allow our customers to transact? And when they look at the existing cryptocurrencies out in the market, they'll see, well, it may be difficult to transact in those cryptocurrencies. So can we use the same technology, the same mindset to say... Let's offer our customers something that they can use that kind of resembles a cryptocurrency. So you introduced the concept of stable coins, which there has been a lot of talk about in the market, maybe way too much talk.
0: Way too much talk, perhaps. What what do you think about this? And why aren't they using Corda? I know that they're they're a member. Uh, they, they are indeed a member. Um, so, so first of all, on the, I guess,
1: th- what they've announced, I mean, it's interesting you call it a cryptocurrency because it doesn't look like one. This is a, a yen liability of, of, of the bank. So this is, okay, they're a bank, maybe issuing under any money license or whatever the equivalent um, regulation is in, in Japan. So so they're using perhaps cryptocurrency-derived technology, blockchain technology perhaps, but it doesn't meet for me any of the, we don't want to get into taxonomy or naming, but it, it doesn't sound like a cryptocurrency. This is a, you know, this, is, this is a fiat liability of the bank. It's, it's a fiat coin which is which is which is fine that's what that's what a lot of people need so it then exactly ties into the point you just made about uh, about stable coins because this maybe we'll get onto this later but there seems to have been a change in the tone or a change in the debate about the stable coins over the last few years because you know, a few years ago when when I read about stable coins this was all about how can we create some sort of synthetic token or some sort of token that attempts to track some real world asset but which is not backed by that asset and um and it just felt like every single one of them is just felt like a perpetual motion machine like it was it will work until it doesn't work whereas now we're getting the examples here from from Mitsubishi UFJ we'll talk about circle later doing something similar with the dollar where it's a you know it, it's not a stable coin in the sense of a of a of a, of, a sort of something synthetic trying to map some, to something else but not being backed by it it's it's actually just a real world liability of, of a financial institution
0: and and i think there's some really important things in what, what you just said there is one of the the big differences here is um cryptocurrencies are inherently anarchic. There there are no laws, they're backed by themselves and they're backed by nothing. But now putting banks in the middle trying to do something else is starting to look like the modus operandi that that was the R three that was digital asset holdings and many other companies back in the day. And I'm surprised, yes, as you said, that they're calling this a cryptocurrency and by their choices of technology, because I've been looking at Blockchains, myself, and as as have you, as a Pete, and, and lots of other people, these things are expensive to run. And if really all you're trying to do is be an e-money provider, something we're quite familiar with in financial services, why do you need this this fancy new blockchain where everybody can see everything and you have to pay somebody in a, in a distant land to process your transaction? So, in
1: my view, on it, it's it's fairly simple, which is you know, the issuing a a token, a, a fiat linked or fiat-backed token for the sake of it. Maybe there are some specific use cases in you know, closed-loop closed, closed loop systems. I think I mean, related to this story is the work that Mizuo is also doing where there's a specific um, use case for an event. But the thing that I think a lot of people have missed is certainly the way I look at it, the way R3 looks at it, is that the value of issuing certainly a fiat-type token onto a ledger is if you issue it onto the same ledger where the other activity is happening. So if on that ledger you also have the obligations and the trades or, or the, the activity that leads to the need to settle in that token, the fact that you've got those agreements, Becca was talking about the blurb earlier, and these financial agreements that have been recorded and managed, if they are on the same ledger as the token with which you can settle, all that Pain of interoperability and integration and all that, all that clunkiness of today's system goes away because, in the same single transaction, that you can move from money owing to money, you know, the obligation discharge and the money moves the other way in one single transaction and everyone moves to consensus at the same time. That's a genuine step forward, but it's not the same as if you've got the cash over here and the obligations over here. That, that certainly, in the institutional sense, which is I know, I know is not what Mitsubishi UFJ is doing, but in the institutional sense, that kind of doesn't make a lot of sense to me.
0: And what you said, I think, is, is really important and bears repeating. It's really bringing that. That synchronization together into the same common sets of standards, the same ledger, if you will, um, where we can rely on this as businesses that are moving large liabilities, large assets across it, regardless of whether they exist there or not, which kind of obfuscates the need to have a quote unquote cryptocurrency and a DLT because we're getting all of these benefits of not losing and locking up money and needing to reconcile is really kind of key.
1: Yes, I guess it's two different problems being solved. So, so, so the you know the, the cryptocurrency world is you know is, is, you know is is its own independent, huge, vibrant world. And then there's the you know the, the the business transactions that need to be settled. And I guess the point I'm trying to make is if you if it's to the extent that you're managing real world contracts on a distributed ledger, um, as you know a whole bunch of companies are, if there's also a settlement medium on that same ledger, things just become so much more massively simple.
0: I think uh, you put it much better than I could have, and definitely more simply. While I still have you here, I want to move on to the next story, um, because this is actually about something you guys have done uh, with Commerce Bank taking a significant step forward towards blockchain, or can we say distributed ledger integration? We could say both. We could say both. Okay, so tell us what the story is about. So, so this story
1: at heart, this story is an interoperability story, which I know as soon as you talk about standard and interoperability, people's eyes glaze o- eyes glaze over and think that this is the most boring thing ever. Um, but actually it's it's a really important point. So if you think back to this, I guess back to the point I was just saying, you know, what problem do do we, I guess, in L3 or in you know, the enterprise blockchain community think we're trying to solve? And the problem we think we're trying to trying to solve is you know, real world businesses can almost be defined as, a, as as the web of contracts that exist between them. You know, I've agreed to manufacture something for you, there's a purchase order, there's a contract that says I need to manufacture it to a certain level of quality, deliver it on a certain date. I've got my books and records, I've got my systems, you've got yours. And almost like the problem of IT, you know, the, the problem that 60 years of investment in IT has left us with is the fact that, yes, we've automated a ton of stuff, we've taken a lot of cost out, lot of, driven a lot of efficiency, but these systems don't properly talk to each other and they're never properly in sync. So so you can't make decisions quickly because you're never quite sure that the information you're looking at is, is correct. So there's a whole bunch of opportunities that don't get taken. There's, like, there's a counterfactual that everyone misses, plus the fact that there's just the cost and time of reconciling them all. So, so you ask yourself, well, how do I solve that problem? Well, it's no good just saying, well, I'll stick a blockchain on it and having some blockchain nodes somewhere in your data center because that's not what you run your business on. You run your business on your CRM systems, your ERP systems, you know, the, the massive package applications that the businesses run on, that's sort of like the idea of them all being SAP. Uh, so what this, what this project showed was um, if we're going to make a real you know, a real difference, we have to show how the, how the systems, the applications that real businesses run on can be linked together and brought into perfect sync. So this was at its core is it quite simple. It shows you know, people run their businesses on SAP. So can we get two instances of SAP run by different organizations, supposedly recording the same data, and prove bring them to a point where they're provably in sync? i did that with Corda. But it takes takes us to a different step. Then is well, if you're going to do that, you just think about this. It gets into the technology now. If you're going to do that, you think about well, how do you deploy this? You know, the the, you know, the the ERP systems are either in the cloud or they're deep in the data center, protected behind sort of five, six levels of firewalls. You know, you know, sort of like the, the the crown jewels of the organization. That's the thing you want to integrate with. That's the thing you need to be in sync with. So you need to have your blockchain node next to it. Except the whole point about blockchain is connecting to different firms across the internet and um, in in a very low cost way. So how does that work you're not going to expose the internal systems of a, of a large institution to the to the bracing winds of the internet but if you if your blockchain nodes out on the internet well, how does it talk to the ERP system so you need to resolve this dilemma and um so so i suspect i i don't know but i suspect one of the reasons this project used corda was that's what corda is designed for you can put the corda node right next to the systems that matter whilst also through the uh, the application the blockchain application firewall the corda firewall make it accessible over the internet so you kind of resolve that that tension that otherwise um, otherwise can't be resolved
2: so yeah I It's a trend I'm seeing a a lot across all the different developments that are happening in the financial markets around DLT is that let the front end continue to operate the way the front end does today, right? And then bring people along slowly and connect that front end to the DLT in the background and we'll start making some progress towards uh, a much higher level of efficiency with all these systems, right?
1: Yeah, totally, and it and it just ties into this interoperability story. So, you know, what what does it take to get blockchain deployed? Well, it has to be able to interoperate with existing systems. That's what this story is about. It has to be able to integrate, interoperate with other blockchain systems, like the stuff that Op Financial, another R3 um, member, did um, demonstrated recently with the Corda talking to Hyperledger Indy. It needs to be able to interoperate with existing systems, existing rails, like the work we're doing with the RTGS or the ban- with the Bank of England. You know, it's, it's multifaceted, but you have to be able to connect to all these different these different islands.
0: Yeah, really kind of bringing the whole complex complex organization getting complexity to work with other levels of complexity and and I know Pete you're doing you're doing a lot of work to bring different complex organizations together in the asset management sphere this is something i guess we're not going to go gung ho and say let's all jump into bitcoin in the asset management space because much like banks they've got erps and they've got to deal with crms and every other thing that happens inside of an organization to deal amongst asset managers to deal with their own clients to deal with banks to deal with the rest of the market surely As we possibly integrate cryptocurrencies, because there is a lot of promise in in that as an asset, they must also be thinking at looking how you can bring more traditional technologies that they've already implemented and possibly working with distributed ledger technologies, dare I say it, uh, at the risk of sounding like a shill, Corda.
2: Yeah, absolutely. On the way here today, I had a conversation with someone in asset servicing on the train, and I was talking to him about DLT and mentioned cryptocurrency. And then the second I mentioned cryptocurrency, his eyes crinkled up. Right, Um, and he said, "Well, listen, I'm not so sure about that, but I, I, I love blockchains." I'm like, "Okay, listen, it all kind of fits together, right? Cryptocurrencies beget ICOs, ICOs beget tokens, tokens then beget security tokens, which will need to be opened up to operate the future of the financial markets on DLT, right? When you talk to an asset manager about this, they're thinking about the 35 to 40 percent margins." Right, And that their willingness to jump and change uh, to do something right now is limited. But when you start talking to them about uh, the cost savings that could be afforded to their business, they start to listen. And just to parallel it to the the whole trade finance side, I met with uh, the head of WAVE uh, last fall, um, Gadi Russian, who was talking about what they were doing on the trade finance side. And he said, listen, just getting the trade finance community to do one thing. Um, is a, a big improvement versus uh, doing a bunch of different things. So I see this as a great example of that, of getting the community to start moving in one, in one direction. On the asset management side, I think it's going to take a bit longer.
0: I think that's, uh, that's a very fair way to look at it. Um, we'll move quickly, but no more quickly than we should. Exactly. So speaking of uh, big moves here, story I really liked and I think was, was kind of typifying the good things that I saw coming out of consensus. And, and Richard, we'll talk about this in a bit more depth because you, I know you have firsthand experience with some of this. Um, Circle now has become a Bitcoin unicorn uh, with backing by the likes of Bitmain. Um, of course, Circle is a, a very well-known company run by a gentleman named Jeremy Allaire, been involved in payment services using cryptocurrencies, but not only, as well as brokerage, uh, backed by Goldman Sachs, amongst others. They've also announced that they launched a dollar, uh, US dollar coin uh, or USDC, which, uh, in a way, correct me if I'm wrong here, seeks to be something like Tether, um, but audited with KYC, so works. <laughs> the risk of sounding cynical here. Um, tell us a bit about this and the 110 million dollar Series A. That's quite big.
1: Yeah, so um, congratulations to um, to Jeremy and, and the Circle team on on that. Um, it's it's quite. Why well, she says series A, I think it says series E on my sheet here. But it's um, yeah, fantastic, fantastic race. Um, yeah, so it's it's interesting because you, you made the distinction between, or you made the, made a comparison between um, USDC, what Circle seemed to be doing, and um, and, and Tether. And I'm not quite. Sh- I mean, I don't know enough about Tether, but I'm not quite sure the same because you know, you, you know, T- T- Circle is, is in the open. The, 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 the certain entities are, are regulated, and and I suspect of you to look once this is up and running and, and issued, you look at you look at Circle's balance sheet. it will be pretty clear. You look at the liability side, the tokens they've issued, these USDC coins. You know, they've issued a billion dollars worth of them. There'll be a billion dollar liability on you know, a balance sheet of them or one of their entities, and there'll be some some some, you know, some matching assets on the other side. There's a question about: Well, do they need to back it one for one with reserves somewhere else, or can they back it with, with other assets? But it will it will look just like any other bank or e money issuer. Just that the the um, the people, the, the way that you know you own this token isn't because of a number and a bank account that you log on to but because some some some, some wallet that they've issued or issued into tells you. So, um, so it's, it's, in some ways, that bit's quite similar to, to the first story with uh, first, first story in Japan. Um, so it'd be interesting to see the detail. But um, I would be amazed if this is anything other than a, you know, just traditional e-money or, um, or, or banking license-driven operation. Because whichever way you look at it, if you want to issue fiat onto Ledger, the same rules apply everywhere else.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I like what Circle are doing. I kind of see them starting to become a bit of a crypto prime. Um, Now, Prime Broker, for those who don't know, service hedge funds, and they provide liquidity and financing and do execution. And with what Circle are doing, with being their their evolution from payments onto an OTC desk, um, now with Poloniex, I just kind of see it going in that direction, where they're opening up liquidity in the crypto arena. um, And because they're doing that, and they're getting big investment, well, they're going to continue to innovate, and they're going to continue to release new things. The 110 million Series E round makes me think, what's next? You know, you generally don't hear of a Series F, right? And I, I'm very curious as to see what they're going to do uh, after this. Will it be an IPO? Will it be a trade sale? You
0: know, that's a very good question. I, I I have to say, Circle is one of my favorite companies in this space. I've been very interested, especially as they as they get in to try to build something that resembles a traditional financial market structure for these new assets. um, And that's something we've been talking about. I'm also really interested by the fact that Bitmain, um, for those that don't know, Bitmain is the largest producer of um, Bitcoin mining equipment amongst other cryptocurrencies. It seems like by doing this, um, maybe part of that strategy is to say, Circle does two things really well. Circle is able to help find liquidity for these coins. Bitmain happens to be at the cutting edge of where Bitcoins get minted, um, and also possibly because their investors need dollars or other fiat currencies. The fact that these all come together may be part of a larger strand. Maybe I'm just extrapolating too much. But it it would be a very interesting idea of really bridging that uh, connection between Bitcoin being produced through technology, through burning energy. And actually having dollars in my bank account or euros or whatever else I need, so um, very interested to watch how this one progresses. Um, and all the best to Jeremy and the team.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, there's a there's probably a, there's a personal story there as well. So I was I was just reflecting on this um, as, I was, as I was taking the tube over to this to this um, meeting because I remember the very first time Jeremy came over to the UK to to pitch Circle um, at um, CoinScrum event in London. It must it must be five years ago now. I forget how long ago it was, but uh, but but the parallel was was eerie because I, I spent Sunday um, in Brighton on the south coast of England at a, effectively a music festival with all these tiny, tiny up-and-coming bands playing in all these venues, um, these dingy venues in the day when the sun's shining outside, most people not paying any attention, just talking amongst themselves and drinking beer at the back of each room. And you think, these some, one or two of these are going to be the big, big bands of the next few years. And it just reminded me of when Jeremy was presenting um, his, his Circle pitch um, uh, back when it was, I guess, the Circle Wallet um, you know, a good few years ago to, to a fairly large room, people not really paying that much attention. He was just some other some other startup guy pitching and people talking at the back, but actually, you know, that was a seminal event. You can see what he's gone on to and what the firm's gone on to achieve. So it was uh, just an interesting parallel between those two events.
0: Always great to see great entrepreneurs actually get out there, you know, at the beginning and then grow. So exactly. uh, yeah. really cool. <laughs> Thank you very much for that other story. This one, I have to say, uh, I am very skeptical about. So I'll, I'll lead everybody in with that, and, and you make your own judgment. But um, Zero X Protocol has decided that they're going to go ahead and launch their next phase of decentralized trading with. The protocol v two oh. um, Richard, do you mind telling us a bit about what Zero, uh, 0 x does? So I actually don't know. So I, I said, that, so I'm, I'm so um as I you know as
1: I think back to before I before I joined r three and before I became r three CTO, I kind of prided myself on on, on keeping track of everything that, that was going on. And you just can't do that when your primary responsibility is, is to get your own platform delivered. So you see, so, so you end up with coming up with these like these heuristics and these mental shortcuts for you know what do I need to focus on and what do I not and to be honest, for this one, as soon as I and again, this could be a shortcut that's inappropriate, and I could have a complete blind spot. But as soon as as soon as I see decentralized trading or decentralized exchanges or anything that suggests you can sort of you can you can exit, you can operate an efficient market that in some way doesn't have centralized matching, I'm. I I could be wrong, but I'm always very, very skeptical. Just in terms of uh, it, almost like matching almost feels like the the quintessential example of something that works best when it's done in one place. So, um, so I could have a blind spot here, but um, but I I use that as a mental shortcut to decide what I spend time on and what
2: I don't.
0: So you're in the bucket with me, Pete. Pete. Yeah, I. Are we all three? I
2: like. You guys read Flash Boys by Michael Lewis? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that was a fascinating book and it got all into the creation of uh, dark pools and um, these, what were originally these kind of back alley venues for trading securities, right? That was all, they were all completely electronic Um, and it was fascinating. And when I saw this story, I thought of that because they talked about in the book, a number of development guys, gals, whomever that were coding all of this stuff. And I thought, okay, well, this is what they're going to be using, right? This is what they're going to be using when they're building um, the crypto uh, decentralized trading mechanism um, that may become part of the everyday financial life in the next five to 10 years, right? So, you know, fascinating, but I can't get too enamored by the technical detail in it.
0: I think that that's a that's a very good way to look at it. I mean, um, I'll put it out there. Some of the, the top line things they are allowing in their their new things um to take in these new token standards ERC 721s, which uh, for those who have been following is what supports CryptoKitties. Um, so these are the things that allow uh, dissimilar tokens. So unlike a, a traditional ERC 20 token or the ones that we know as ICOs, where every token is like every other token in the class, this this allows unique snowflakes of, uh, of tokens. Th- this allows us to trade them across, which actually may be a decent use for a decentralized exchange because you don't need that fast order matching. But as Richard alluded to, what works really, really well is when you centralize an order book and decide who wins a particular trade if we have two competing entities. For those that have worked in, in financial markets, you realize that happens in microseconds. Um, and literally, there are people that pay hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to cut down fiber optic cable's by centimeters um, sitting inside of an exchange in a process called co-location which basically means getting as close to that process as possible so a lot of people have looked into this and said well wouldn't it be great if we could get rid of that advantage not realizing but if you kind of move this around to a periphery of a thousand of them if i have more money i will always win because it's more likely that i can sit very close to those hundred thousand uh, different validating nodes than my average guy who's just tossing it across the internet. Um, so we'll be interested to watch it. Uh, could be interesting for trading crypto kitties, but uh, I'm still quite skeptical on anything that needs to move quicker than a kitty. So uh, on to this next one. And, and Pete, so we, we talked to the guys at Consensus, actually in Dublin last week. We did. Uh, the the team out there, they've teamed up with Amazon to deliver streamlined access to blockchain.
2: Yeah, I like this. Uh, this is their Kaleido thing, um, which takes a unique approach to integrating public ethereum blockchain with private chains um and this starts to get into where i get excited about where the financial markets are going um, and uh, we we talk about uh, asset classes right and we talk about what's been digitized already being bonds equities listed derivatives um, and what hasn't been digitized yet Um, that are still operating in in paper format. And those paper format assets or alternative assets, as we call them, um, that's where there are some new market opportunities where you could start trading assets that aren't traded today um, or unlock liquidity in assets that are locked up in closed-ended funds, such as private equity. What you're going to need in order for all of that to operate are a public chain type infrastructure, but with some private chains that sit below that, mm-hmm. right? So that you can have the secondary market liquidity and say private equity instruments. So I really like this. Uh, I was with the consensus guys again yesterday in Dublin, um, you know, twice in, in five days. Um, we didn't get to cover this. Uh, they they hinted at something in the past, obviously, without naming names here. Um, but, you know, it's it's really interesting to see them do this.
0: And it's really just interesting note, and I'll I'll toss it over to you, Richard, to to respond to this. But um, these cloud companies, it seems like some of them, Microsoft very notably, was early to the game in how this is getting used. Personally, I, I used AWS just because I was more used to it. When I started playing around with this technology, there were a lot of problems, especially in the early days of Ethereum, of just trying to set these things up and run them if you just want to run a basic miner. And um, my my feeling as of late, and, and I think you probably disagree with me here, is a lot of these, these providers came in with this notion of blockchain as a service and firing up your own network and using all this. And I went to an Oracle event a couple of months ago in France, and my my feeling was... They just saw this as, hey, it's a new new line, but we don't really know or care about it. But, you know, if we can make some money out of people playing with it, is there a bigger play here? Because I know you guys have teamed up with some of these companies.
1: I think there is. So, I mean, we we're, we're partnered with um, with Microsoft, Microsoft Azure. We're actually also a partner of um, of Amazon, Amazon Web Services. Code is available on both of them. That you'll be hearing more about. Um, extra work we're doing with both of them in, in the coming weeks as we get closer to the quarter enterprise launch at the end of end of June. I, th- I think there's definitely been you know, there's been I guess an evolution in people's thinking. Um, but it, I think it's been on both sides, both the cloud providers, but also in how the, the blockchain providers have have been describing their vision. I mean, I put a blog post out. It was actually quite controversial because I think I went a bit harder on. Some with the competition than perhaps I intended to. So We're going think, to come back to that. at some Yeah. Point. So I think I, I think I upset one or two people. But the the point I was trying to make in that blog post was I've actually just so take a step back. I've just actually just refreshed the core introductory white paper. I've just merged it after review and it. I'll, I'll put a blog post out about it in a few days. And I just refreshed it just just to highlight to people what was in the, the original version. You know, we had this vision back in six back in sixteen of you know a vision where anybody can transact with anybody else for any contractual purpose with no artificial barriers or you know no no islands of assets. It's back backwise making the point earlier about you know sort of like cash on ledger over here and contracts over here makes no sense you you want it in the same place but the point i was making there was the vision was one of the driving visions for Corda was let's look at what the ethereum community have built on the public network and multiple different applications written by different people for different purposes that nevertheless coexist on the same network and can interoperate how can we achieve something business something equivalent and something um, something just as good but but in a business scenario where you have some non-negotiable constraints around privacy and scalability and all the rest so the whole vision was of a you know of a single global interoperable network Network, albeit with you no know, necessary governance and that has to be done transparently. So if that's the vision, you think about, well, what's the role of, of cloud providers um, in that world? Well, you can just work through the requirements pretty simply. So if somebody want, if, some, if there's already an application somebody wants to adopt, and we'll talk about some applications in a minute, how do they get a node spun up? So you need to go to Amazon Web Services, you go to Azure and say, I need a I know, high performance, high quality, highly available node talking to, SQL, talking to SQL Server or Oracle, and I need to connect it to the global quarter network or on Ethereum, I need to connect it to the global Ethereum network. So I need to be able to onboard it to that and go through, you know, go through the var- various processes. But actually, so, so, that's, so that's one use case you have to support. But there's also a scenario, and I think there is a there is there is a case for private networks for testing. You know, if you're an independent software vendor or a systems integrator who's who's testing a new application and bringing a consortium together for trade finance or whatever it is, there are, there are times when you need to test that in private. You need to be able to spin up one of these private networks. Um, and being able to do that and by cl- a click of a button on, on one of these um, one of these cloud providers is it's, it's non negotiable and it's absolutely valuable. So um, yeah, so I saw the Kaleido announcement and and, and the. Before Amber's announcement of Clover, and they seemed there seemed differences, but also seemed some, some overlaps. But my overriding sense of, of both of them was, um, and certainly the, the approach I'm taking with with our cloud strategy uh, with, with Corda is um, you know, the overwhelming value in this area can be provided by the cloud providers. You know they know their platforms best. They know how to help us and others get get Corda, get Ethereum, get these different platforms, uh, these different um, software versions on their on their networks and able to be connected and onboarded to the to the, um, to the networks. Uh, so it was, it was quite interesting to watch. Thank
0: And I really like the distinction you make there about um, setting up and running for testing purposes and having the security. And it's true that the cloud providers are excellent for that, and they have redundancy in it. But that that then brings up the question of if we're building distributed networks or, or decentralized networks, if we're talking about cryptocurrencies, things like Ethereum, if we put all of our eggs in one basket Quite practically, um, by putting them in four or five cloud providers around the world, do you really actually have decentralization or dis- distribution? Well, it depends on you. So, so actually, this is this is
1: this is front of mind right now. So, whilst whilst I'm recording this, this week we're running a, a huge project to, and um, we'll, we'll publicise it subsequently. But a huge project with thirty plus of our members, over two hundred people participating in a sort of like a global scale um, global scale project to to, to test um, to test a new application, um, and and we're hosting that in the cloud in Azure. But the the key point is, you know. Decentralization isn't all about where the software runs. It's ultimately who controls it, who 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 can control the data, and ultimately who controls the keys. So um so you know, so we've we designed something on the quarter side, could design it very carefully t- to allow it um, in, in in the version after next, so that the node itself can run and be sort of you know if you like managed in the cloud or by some third party. But the but the actual power, the ability to sign transactions is is retained by the um the end user or by the end organization. Because if your keys are also in the cloud, then you're right, you know, as you're your as good as the hypervisor or the, any secret key the cloud provider has, you know, what have you actually decentralized? Yeah.
0: Absolutely, and and what would happen? You know, if if God forbid, any of these things got hacked and somebody was able to get into it. Perhaps less of a concern where you're actually backed by legal contracts, more of a concern where you're in an anarchic environment. Yeah. And in all cases, where are the keys? Where are the keys? Exactly. And that should be our new thing. Next story, I will go ahead and and say that I do have a bit of a conflict on this. Um, uh, TradeShift is a company looking at supply chain. I I am advising a company in the space. Very interesting things that they're looking at, uh, though, TradeShift. Addressing late payments, so this is something that's that's quite large, a big problem in actual business. uh, Forget blockchains, Um, and they're talking about a nine trillion dollar global problem with capital being trapped up in accounts receivable, and they're trying to free some of this money. Pete, uh, can you talk to us a bit about this?
2: Yeah, I mean, typically accounts receivable. My history as an accountant, I never actually was an accountant, but I played one on TV. Having all of that racked up in a receivable account, some of the uh, SMEs, small to medium sized enterprises, their lifeblood depends upon getting this money unlocked, right? And that the big enterprise are the worst offenders and say, we're going to pay you in 90 days. It's like, well, can you pay me in 30 or can you pay me in 15, please? And just let, let's get this done with. Moving on to a more distributed setup for something like this would be beneficial, but I would look at it a bit skeptically. One of the, um, one of the, the folks in my network, uh, Brian Norton, who is an entrepreneur in Dublin, um, he's set up a new business called Supply Finance. He, he previously had a, a business called Future Finance that was a student loan financing business. And he set up Supply Finance kind of going in this direction to an extent um, without any mention of distributed ledger technology um, on his whole setup. Right, so obviously it's beneficial, you know, for for how things will will, will work. But I think that uh, can you do without? You know, um, that's my, that's a question I ask when I see something like this.
0: So Richard, there's some things in here I, I really like um, because they're talking about things that you you and I have and Pete have been covering for the last half an hour. Or so um, so I guess question wind Corda. <laughs>
1: Well, so, so it's it, that was the thing that um, struck me last week at Consensus because um, there were a whole pile of code announcements that came out at the same time. So uh, so if I take a step back, if someone had asked me when I joined R3 Tech, I guess two and a half, almost three years ago now, where do I think this technology will get deployed at scale first? Um Completely, sort of like, completely honestly, I would not have predicted trade finance. Maybe I should have done, but that's that. That that's where it's been. So if I think about, you know, so you asked about work order. So so the Marco Polo project um, is something that um, we're working on with a startup called TradeIX. Is, um, is is going great. Guns a whole bunch of banks and other organisations trying to improve um, open account trade finance. So 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 this this massively growing side of trade finance where you don't have complex documentary uh, documents and um, you know, letters of credit and things in place, but you still need to ensure the risk is managed. And then last week, I mean, it sounds small. But it was it was so. I guess it, we'll look back on it as a seminal moment. A um, first of account transaction between HSBC, ING, and Cargill for a um, for a soybeans movement um, live on the corner network. Um, and you can always tell how important something really is by who ultimately who is a firm willing to put up and, and which which news networks are they willing to talk about it on because they only get you know, they've only got so much capital with financial you know, with with news organisations. There's only so many times they get to go on TV. And HSBC put up their head of trade finance, sort of senior senior guy. You know, HSBC is such a huge trade finance a tr- tr- trade bank on CNBC to talk specifically about this project and to talk about how they did it on Corda.
0: So it's like it was a big deal. Uh, that is a big deal and it's I, I, I agree with you um, when I started getting into this at a bank and looking I would have never guessed trade finance but uh, you know it's often those things yeah. so um, I hope I wish these guys the best of success and, and I hope we see a lot more of this trade finance because from the best I understand and it's not my background at all um, there are some big issues that they're trying to solve At the very minimum, $9 trillion would be great to free up. Yeah, and
2: also there's some um, potential fraud in the industry as well with having um, these contracts kind of sold one, two, three, four, five times to different banks, right? You're financing the same receivable a bunch of times, Mm. right, just to unlock some cash. Um, And having that all in uh, in one setup would be beneficial. But as I was saying, there are some other ways to do that, right? So you got to think about what problem you're solving. Indeed, and it
1: also ties maybe quickly to you know, the how I think about strategy from a from a product perspective. You know, if I guess I was lucky enough to, or we were lucky enough to realize that we we knew we didn't know what the answers were. So you know, so so right from the start, we said, well, what do we know? We think we know what the requirements are for, regardless of industry, what the requirements of a DLT should be for business. So that's that's where we think we can be very opinionated and we can take a risk, but we're unop- unopinionated on what the first use cases will be. So it's so we said, fine, well, that's going to be the case. Our strategy has to be a completely open platform One, we have to be horizontal, we have to be, um, we can't pick winners and we can't be, um, you know, we, we, we can't be exclusive. We have to say that this platform is open and all industries for all people we think it's the right one to use. You, the people, the entrepreneurs, the people who are going to take risk and can see the opportunity, you build on top of it, we won't get in your way because, you know, if we'd not done that, then I suspect there'd be no trade finance and running on court.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I would hope in open source things that uh, we don't have companies getting in the way. <laughs> and speaking of, of removing barriers, this is a story that uh, we've been talking about is a common theme here. Capital markets, blockchains are finally getting go live dates. Um, this, this story is actually about digital asset holdings, which uh, we've been following for a while now. This is Blythe Masters Company. Um, Chris Church, who's the head of business development, came on and started talking about some of the work that they're doing with uh, the likes of the DTCC, which is the big uh, custodian uh, in the US, as well as sorry, the CSD in the US, as well as ASX. Um, is this a common theme or is this just something I'm, I'm making up and, and we're optimistically talking about it, digital asset are you guys actually seeing stuff coming live?
1: Uh, yeah. So I was I was actually in the audience at Consensus when when Chris Church was interviewed about that. And it was interesting. I was sitting right at the back. I'm one of these, I guess, one of these dilettantes who just sort of flits in and out of um, sessions. I'm always at the back. But it gives me the opportunity to see what people are doing. And, and as, as an industry, we compete with each other. But we also have a shared interest in this industry being successful. So so I'm, I'm really pleased for the digital asset and ASX and, and what they're doing. And it was great when Chris Church was on the stage and said, you know, the, the, his big announcement was ASX have just published. I think it was that day. A, as you said, this 87-page document that goes into real detail about how this thing's going to get live. And it's just interesting seeing the number of people who then pulled up their laptops and Googled for it so they could download it. It was, it was, it was interesting to watch. Um, but you see, what, but what else is going live? I, saw, I, wrote, I wrote some down just to, to protect my... just to um, sort of like, uh, make sure I could remember them. And just and this, these are just the ones I'm aware of on Corda, and we know other platforms have them as well. So there's um, Finastra's um, LenderCom. So Finastra, people probably don't know the name, but Finastra is the new name for um, DNH and, 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 and Mysis. So anyone who's in the syndicated loan market will no, learn IQ. These are the guys behind Loan IQ. Uh, their syndicated lending solution on Corda is already live. Um, HQLax, who are a startup, who recently entered into a strategic partnership with Deutsche Borsa, they've done their first transactions and will go fully live um, later in the year for um, securities lending. Um, we've already got gold live on Corda. So gold trading is already um, live on, on, on Corda with a, a firm based in, based in Canada. Um, the one that really interests me, because I think it goes back to this tokenization arg- argument, because each of these, you know, these are different assets. They're all real-world assets. They're not yet crypto assets, but they're real-world assets securitized on the same global network, um, is, is oil and gas royalties um, tokenization. So in, I think in Canada, you know, if, you, if, if you own land and oil is extracted from underneath it, there's this really complex set of rules about who gets paid and what, what royalties you get. Well, that can be traded and tokenized. And and these are just the ones I could remember off the top of my head as I was, I was coming here. So there's there's lots of stuff. And they're, they're all things, with the exception of HQLX, that are live today. So so it's live. So.
2: 18, the watershed year. Yeah, yeah I love it. Um, Reading this article just made me make my list too, right? (laughs) Of the things that I see that I talk to people about that are exciting. Um, Calistone. They've built what they call a distributed market infrastructure, so they're part of the asset management community, asset servicing, their funds industry. Um, and ASX, obviously, yes, I downloaded the 87-page white paper a couple of weeks ago. Um, I read it with, you know, uh, w- w- with lots of smiles on my face. Um, also, the DTCC with their Trade Information Warehouse on credit derivatives, and we've heard about that last year. Um, all of this, to me, is, again, as we talked about at the beginning of this, is about building the new way. Um, while still keeping the old way present and there and and, an option for people. So take ASX, right? The members of the Australian Stock Exchange can become a node, uh, but if you're not quite ready for prime time, you could still Swift in, right? Or you can API in. Um, Calistone are doing the same thing. DTCC are doing the same thing. Others that we know about are doing the same thing. Um, and this gives me so much fodder to hold up to people when they look at me, when I start talking about DLT, crypto tokens, so on and so forth, they look at me like I'm a three card Monty dealer in some of the circles that I'm in, right. That I've, you know, sleight of hand, I'm going to trick them, right. That, That all of this is just, you know, it is air and hype. And it, it's wonderful to see, um, more exciting to be involved in, in driving some of this stuff forward, obviously.
0: Yeah. Another great news here. This week's episode is also brought to you by Howie Coins, which utilizes the latest crypto technology to allow travelers to purchase all segments without limitations, allowing Howie coin users to buy, sell, trade in a frictionless environment where they can use Howie coins to purchase travel. And or government-backed, freely tradable investment, or both. Obviously, we're not backed by Howie Coin. It's not a real thing, but it was the best troll I think from last I've week. I
1: already sent all my ether for the presale. What do you say?
0: <laughs> so, the SEC, the Securities Exchange uh, Commission in the United States, uh, this is the big regulator. It looks after things like. How do you actually register? Throw back to the Howey test, which is the landmark case from the 1940s, I believe, uh, which established what a security was and wasn't, and then would have to follow the rules that are set up in the 1933 and 1934 Securities Acts, which are basically everything you need to know about financial markets law in the United States, and then millions and millions more pages. Uh, I thought this was really cool that it came out during consensus.
1: <laughs> I think I think it's fascinating, and it's always maybe it's something we should all do more as as, as individuals and in industry. But it's always it's, it's always I always find it interesting to think about you know when something like this happens, what hasn't happened or what could have happened but didn't, and what can you learn from that? And when you look at how well put together this is, how you know, how well structured it is, you know, it's it's a really high quality I see a white paper written by people from um, from from the SEC. So you sort of think of them as, and I don't know any of these people, I've got no insight into this at all. But but the thought process I went through was okay, so you've clearly got some very talented individuals who, if they wanted to, could, could go out and write a whole bunch of, of ICO papers, but they haven't. Um, so you think about, okay, well, what does that then tell me about the information they have that is not yet public about what must be coming? Because if they didn't believe the SEC was going to take action, why would they stick around? Because if they thought the SEC was actually okay with all this, why wouldn't you just leave and go do this? So so the fact that they haven't tells me stuff, stuff must be coming.
2: Yeah, I think they got a future writing white papers. I mean, they could do this like kids in university that go and write... Papers for their classmates, right? And they get a a hundred quid per paper that they do. Um, Not that I have any experience with that whatsoever. Um, But I just love one of the quotes there. And it's just the meaninglessness of some of the words that are in the white papers. Howie Coins utilize the latest crypto technology. Okay, we get that, right? To allow travelers, right? What travelers to purchase all segments, right? Which segments without these limitations? What freaking limitations are you talking about? It's just completely meaningless babble that you see in some of these. Now, I've seen some ICO white papers that are quite succinct, get to the point, and they um, have a good proposition. I would still like to see them hold themselves up to the venture capital pitch deck. Not that anyone needs to go through the rest of their life doing PowerPoint. But anyway, long story short, I love it. I think it's funny. Um, I think we'll get a lot of uh, mileage out of this story
0: oh it's just amazing and it's great that we have a regulator in the united states that will take the piss out of the industry it's awesome and um for those people that are out there thinking you know we're going to get away with it um obviously they're reading it because they structured a great one um so uh definitely if you're if you're thinking about launching icos or anything else make sure you take out good qualified legal advice um and please don't plagiarize the howie coin white paper so stories we didn't have time to cover Uh, Four really interesting stories. Please do take time to read over this. Uh, The first one I really liked, but unfortunately we didn't have time to cover it, from uh, Miss Francis Coppola, who talks about what determines the price of Bitcoin. Different economic models inside of this, uh, writing for Forbes. Really, really good article if you're interested in this. I wrote a long blog about a week ago about these things as well from the other angle. Other one – and Pete, I know this one is quite close to your heart when we're having a discussion – Crypto tribalism is holding back blockchain. I don't know about that personally, but uh, Pete's uh, definitely interested in this article. Yeah,
2: I, I think there is, like, like I was saying a little bit earlier, I think you, you start to see the whites of people's eyes sometimes when they start talking about um, crypto. Uh, When you start talking about crypto or I start talking about crypto um, and this whole mindset towards, well, there's crypto capitalism and there's crypto anarchy. Right. So um, is it holding back blockchain, Uh, blockchain as as a a term for distributed ledger technology? I think so. Um, But I As I said to the guy on the train today, I said, you've got to embrace it because it's all part of the same thing. Um, There are, you know, you distinguish between the different terms, um, but you really can't have blockchain without crypto.
0: Very well put. So next story from CCN.com. 750 million petros, I guess, whatever this is. Uh, Ruples, probably $12 million. Uh, Russia's largest bank buys commercial bonds on a blockchain wonder which blockchain read businessinsider.com a uk trading platform has launched a crypto exchange pitched at banks and hedge funds uh seems like it's getting to be a crowded market but uh all all the best of luck to the lmax exchange
2: yeah no I, i i can see that coming i mean they're more and more like you're saying coming into this um, very interested in the regulatory side of all this. Um, when you start talking about digital assets inside hedge funds, regulated investment funds, um, you have a few things to uh, concern yourself with. And I think there's a whole slate of regulatory documents that are up for review um, that you could say, well, you got to change this, you got to change that, or just make a note to it um, before you can, you can make all of this uh, ready for prime time. And now on to Petrit's favorite thing
0: the tweet of the week tweet
2: tweet 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 it's the tweet
1: of the week
0: <laughs> this one's from ryan selkis lots of good coinbase nuggets on wapo piece this week this was an article that came out from the washington post uh some of the things he pulled out here is the company's has 20 billion dollars in aum or assets under management um supposedly actually in cryptocurrency custody custodianship but not under management uh 99 of funds are in cold storage 1 in hot insurance insured by lloyd's partner or Lloyd's syndicate member uh Customer service response time down from 70 hours to 10 hours, uh, which if you're trying to stop a, a movement in or out of a stolen uh, account is still a bit too long, but we're going the right direction. And same number of customer accounts as Fidelity, uh, which I think is a bit disingenuous, if I can be honest, um, because you do have to pay and have a minimum of Fidelity, whereas um, I think you can open an infinite number of Coinbase accounts for free. So not a, not apples and oranges, but interesting things in here. Pete, what do you think about this?
2: Yeah, the, I, the cold storage thing is interesting. Um, I'm aware of a crypto fund manager that built their own cold storage because they don't trust anybody else. Um, The same number of customer accounts as Fidelity. I am a Fidelity customer. Um, I am also a Coinbase customer. I'd say I look at my uh, Fidelity account a lot more frequently than I look at my Coinbase account because I
0: am a hodler. Right, <laughs> so um, <An> equity. <laughs> um, you know, I, I well, I, I do want to say in here, Ryan. I'm glad that you got your your Twitter account back because I know that you were having some issues. Um, but uh, you know, Coinbase is a very strong, uh, growing company. Um, there's a lot that they're doing right, um, and there's a lot more that they can still learn from. So I hope that they're not complacent. And they keep offering good services. Lots of cool things coming from them. Um, but it is amazing to see the size uh, and scale of everything in here and But it seems like they're trying to create a valuable business.
2: Oh, absolutely. And there was a story that came out just in the last day or so about um, they they were having discussions from some unnamed source with the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency uh, in the U.S. about a bank license. Uh, the Coinbase were. And that the, the comment from someone with knowledge of the conversation or who had had similar conversations uh, was that once you start talking to these folks about what a bank license really mean, their eyes glaive, glaze over and there's skid marks of them leaving the building. Um, so yeah, get your head around it. Um, it's an opportunity, uh, but I think we got a
0: long way to go there. Just before we go, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast, our challenger agency that helps banks, asset managers, FMI, and anyone with a challenge in blockchain or DLT to achieve more. If you want to understand how to commercialize blockchain projects or just have a speaker for your next event, we'll hope that you'll get in touch. Hit us up at 11FS.com to find out more. Richard, where can people find out more about you?
1: You can find out more about R3 at r3.com and about Corda at corda.net.
0: And before we let you go, um, can you tell us just a couple of questions left here? Um, R3, Do you guys hate Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies?
1: No, we see. I, I, it's 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 so. It, it, I see all these because um, I, I I'm one of these sort of people who just can't help checking on Twitter to see what people are saying about different topics, and um and I see all these people who assume that either I as an individual always affirm um you know hate these things, and and it's just it's just not the case. I mean, if you could see the um you know the the how much thinking went into just from the technology perspective, how much thinking went into the design of Corda. I mean, you look at it, you can see the if you you can see like the evolutionary family tree, you can see the bits that were influenced by Bitcoin, the bits that were influenced by Ethereum, Ethereum, by much older technologies like open transactions, Ian Griggs' work. All these things are sort of like have sort of come together. Um, massively, massively um, inspired and um, and and sort of just like just sort of driven by, by by a lot of that. Um, the fact that there isn't a cryptocurrency in Corder doesn't mean we hate them. It just means we
0: for this problems we're trying to solve, Corda doesn't have one because we don't we don't think it needs one. So. And I think that's a very good way to look out at it. Are there any things that we should be paying attention to on the horizon? Obviously, we'll talk about it on this show. But anything you can.
1: Yeah, so I guess a whole bunch of stuff. So um, for those who've not been paying close attention, take a look at um, the Corda blog, so medium.com slash Corda. I've been giving a lot more information on how the community is growing. You know, we're, we're getting probably just overwhelmed now by the number of people who are either building on top of Corda or contributing to the base platform. So we've set up, so, so on the technical side, we've set up some new technical mailing lists and made it much clearer about how to contribute, how contributions are reviewed and just how to how to get your name on the list of, contribut- on the list of contributors, which is like hundreds and hundreds of names long. I think people, if you go to um, the Corda a GitHub repo and quarter being open source and you actually just see how many unique individuals and firms have contributed to this it, 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 it's really, I mean it was, it, was, it was really quite awe-inspiring as I looked at it and thought wow that, that that's a lot of people we've worked with over the last few years to get this thing ready, so a lot of work in the community um, and quarter um, 3, 3.1 have just been shipped, there'll be another open source release later in the year and there's an enterprise version, um, a sort of commercial version of, of a commercial distribution if you like, a quarter coming at the end of Q2 for those who want some additional high availability features 24-7 support and things like that, but design to be completely interoperable and compatible with the
0: um, the open source product and both to work on the same open network. Great, thank you. And thank you very much for Corda for supporting this podcast. Delighted, thanks for having me. And Pete, where can people find out more about what you do? You can find me
2: on Twitter at Pete TownsendNV and also Pete at 11FS.com.
0: And also I have to thank the amazing team here doing production at 11FS, Laura Watkins, our producer, Michael Bailey, our editor, who stepped out of the room for the moment, assistant producer, Petrit. Barisha, <laughs> I had a butcher. Thank you all for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Please subscribe to our podcast. We love when you give us feedback as well. Reviews on iTunes are great. Uh, Fud us on Twitter. Harass us. Uh, get in touch. Spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues to listen too. Uh, we have lots more coming up in the next week. So please, please listen. Um, we'll be having much more next week. Thank you very much and goodbye.